Be sure to share the podcast on your favourite social media channels. Before we get started, or as we come in here, you have a middle name that is different than most. Seriously. What is your middle name? Can you tell everybody? Vibe. That has to be the most <laughs> badass middle name I've ever heard in my life. Like, you should be an action figure or a <laughs> DJ or fucking, you're limitless. When parents name their kids right, they really give them fucking sky's the limit scenarios, which is weird that we can fucking be impeded just by a couple of letters randomly in a place when we're born. But for those of you joining us, this is Adam Vibe Gunton, a best-selling author of From Chains to Save, founder of Recovered on Purpose, and host of the Recovered on Purpose show. Um, overcome homelessness and drug addiction back in November 6, 2017. Thank you for recovering and dedicating your life to service, Adam. Welcome to the show. Jay, thanks so much for having me, brother. Thank you, man. Excited. I love your energy, dude. <laughs> I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh -huh. Same, man. I, I was looking through a lot of your videos, and I love the fact that you approach it with not just a serious vibe, but you choose comedy in ways that you approach it as well which is pretty funny i see you doing some of the trending tiktoks but you're making them more uh dedicated to addiction and allowing people that probably sit in that bucket that have not admitted to the outside world that there's somebody out there that's doing the same damn shit they are they just don't realize it exactly I think that's yeah. super cool thank you thank you and i think that you know, people that have been through some stuff, uh, especially people that have made it out of like serious, dark situations, we're able to see a different kind of light in the world, you know, and that kind of comedy that only an addict can get makes, I mean, it makes you connect with them even more. It absolutely does. We talk about comedy a lot on the show and how it bridges societal divides so easily without taking a front to anybody in the situation. It's an observer's ability to examine their own flaws without being seen by the world. And I love that. And also it takes away the fucking power when you laugh at shit. Yep. Because ultimately we're all in the same fucking soup. We're just different seasonings all fucking hanging out and they're thinking we're separate from everybody else. It's right. not true. So... You are the founder of Recovered on Purpose, but in order to be recovered on purpose, there has to be a path to that moment. Can you tell us about where you came from, what you've been through, and what led you to this life of service with Recovered on Purpose and from Chains to Saved? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, I grew up in middle America. Everybody's heard of uh, the school that I went to. I went to Columbine High School. And, mm. you know, growing up uh, in elementary school, I was a straight A student. I was, you know, state champion wrestler in Little League. I was the home run derby hitter at the Little League World Series. We won state every year for my football team. We won nationals once. And, uh, you know, it was going great. 
But when I was 12 years old, I was introduced to cocaine and by an older influence. And then for the rest of my, you know, sports career, my student athlete career, my grades started to slip. And even though I was the captain of the wrestling team, captain of our state championship football team, my senior year at Columbine High School, I had this deep, dark secret that, you know, I was partying more and more and more. I was using more and more drugs. I was drinking more and more. And then on September 28th, 2008, I had been out drinking and partying like most nights my freshman year of college when I woke up to my phone ringing and vibrating down by my leg. And I swam through the soft sheets to find my hard phone with the bright screen that read 4.47 a.m. And my best friend Chucker was calling me. And I remember having the conscious choice that I could either answer the phone like I always do with, hey, what's up, Chuck? Or I could answer the way I was feeling with, oh, hello. And in my still drunken state, I chose the latter, to which a soft voice replied, hey, what's up? Why are you calling me this late? I was just calling to say hi. Don't call me this late again. And I hung up on him. And he shot himself. And for nearly a decade after that experience, I was unable to share that phone call with anyone as I bottled it down deeper and deeper and deeper with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol were no longer a way to party and have fun. Drugs and alcohol had become my solution to life. And I remember before that, it was, you know, it was fun. I, I was just partying. I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, I was setting myself up for when something happened in my life, it would be my only coping mechanism. And, you know, I'm going to spare you a bunch of the details of, you know, the horrors of addiction and got to a point where I was using against my will. Like I, I, for a significant period of time, I didn't want to be using, but I had to, I had to be sticking this needle in my arm. I had to go pick up dope. You know, there were multiple times, dozens of times where I put my dope in a toilet, flushed it down. You could have strapped a lie detector test to me and I would have passed when I told you I'm never using again. And then I wake up in the morning and I go pawn my TV to go pick up more dope. And it got to a point on November 6th of 2015, I was found unresponsive by the police in a car from an overdose. And something like six, seven, eight million people have seen the body cam footage of that incident where I am gone, bro. Like I am gone. I don't have life in my eyes. I'm not breathing. I don't have a pulse. And you know, you would think that seeing that video of your own dead body in a courtroom facing five years in prison would be enough to make somebody stop using drugs. But I suffered for two more years and I ended up homeless. Uh, I was in a homeless shelter for a little bit until I got 86 from the homeless shelter to where I wasn't even able to go eat at the homeless shelter anymore. Uh, and I was trying everything to stop, bro. Everything. I was going to two 12-step meetings a day. I was going to church every Saturday and Sunday. I was going to Bible study every Tuesday. I even went to the Grindhouse MMA gym in Billings, Montana, thinking the pros might be able to beat clean into me, but I couldn't get clean. And, and that's a new method. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Punched sober. I like this. I, let's open up this gym because we're just going to beat up people that are inebriated. Punched oh. over. That's actually a really good name, too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. That is now copyrighted, patented, and trademarked. Punched sober. I, it probably yeah. already exists. It's yeah. too easy. <laughs> and I even, there was a guy that was training for a, for a pro fight. And I went in there and I was having him kick me as hard as he could. Like, and I was blocking it and just. Just telling him, kick me as hard as you can. Kick me as hard as you can. And the and the coach even came over and told him to chill. He was like, he told me to. I was like, I told him to. And I'm having him kick me as hard as he can. Because I'm like, 
dude, that's how desperate I was though. Like literally the desperation of an addict. Yes. People do not realize how deep and dark that struggle is from the outside. We examine it with a lens that says it's a choice, Uh but within the mind, the heart, the body, there's always a catalyst that brings forth addictions. And we don't recognize that. And experiences are lenses. I say it all the time. And as you progress through life, whether it be traumatic, happy, whatever it is, your prescription changes. And as you get deeper down the path, it's harder to see clearly. And it's harder to take things in. So you give up and you start taking in alcohol, drugs, cocaine, Whatever gives that view through your glasses a little bit of color, just for a little while. So you don't have to be lost again with those thick-ass glasses, not knowing what to do next. But the reality is, it's just glasses. Yeah. The experiences can literally be removed from your eyes. But as addicts, you will never see the glasses on your face. And in all honesty, I hate using the word addicts. I hate using any kind of negative connotation to people that are going through a struggle like that in their life because I don't feel it's their fault. Um, I've felt that way for a long time. I think that addicts or people that are going through those struggles are simply using it to cope with something that they went through in their past and it does not have to be you know the big you know oh it's got to be rape it's got to be you know sexual abuse got to be you know beaten senseless no it doesn't because again with experiences comes lenses and with lenses comes different viewpoints you know what sucks for a kid in the suburbs a narcissist mother that forces pills down his throat every other day because she wants him to act a certain way in front of their friends. Yep. Or, you know, does some kind of criticism for how they look, act, whatever it is. Those become fears. Fears become masks. Masks need attention. And after a while, they get heavy and you don't want to carry them anymore. Yep. Take your drug, take your alcohol, take your cocaine, take your food. Take your gym, take your running, take your obsessive thoughts, whatever the fuck it is. Those are addictions too, chief. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one thing that I hear a lot, um, there's, there's a few different things that just kind of show up all the time in the addiction space, right? Cause they're saying that, you know, 20% of females about are sexually abused in their childhood. A, a huge percentage of them end up, you know, using drugs and drinking. And then there's another one that I hear a lot, and that's damage from church, damage from a church family mm. where, you know, somebody is being taken to church every Sunday by their family, and then their family in church is a completely different, you know, unit than when oh. they go home and their dad's, you know, drinking and yelling and screaming and doing all this different stuff, you know, that, that causes a lot of damage too. We don't think about, and when we talk about trauma, You know, we don't think about the way that trauma actually shows up in an adolescent's life. You know, Mm. it doesn't have to be the physical abuse or the sexual abuse and the things that you were mentioning. You know, trauma shows up in the brain the same way for an adolescent if it's, you know, a divorce or if it's, 
you know, uh, emotional abuse or neglect, these kind of things can, can cause people to seclude and try to find other ways to cope. Like you're talking about some people, you know, I've met people that became extremely successful because they coped with achievement. They coped with, you know, finding that way to get approval from other people, you know, and I'm, and I'm still searching for the way that we can get into the mind of kids when that stuff is going on to make them choose, you know, something more productive like that, something that will actually help them in the long run. If they're going through a trauma at home, you know, I haven't, I haven't found exactly what it is yet. Um, but everybody always talks about that moment that something happened where their mind changed. How do we make it when that moment happens to their, where their mind changes this way? That is a very tricky subject. Um, I think you have hit the nail on the head for probably 75% of philosophers out there. Um, religious texts and everything in between. Um, they generally point to somewhere between five to seven years old and everything turns a different direction. The yep. ego steps in and the mask is created. And generally, I believe that, generally I believe, I think that these masks are created in one of two ways. They're either lightly applied over time mm. as if it was a clear and you were doing your first watercolor and there's numbers. You have that parent that is coming up there and dotting number five, dotting number three, giving you OCD, right? Yep. But that's a whole nother fucking bag of tricks there. But that mask is being done in layers, nicely, neatly, and in a loving manner. And then there's mask number two. Mask number two comes in the form of any fucking thing traumatic you could imagine. It could be beaten with a belt until you're black and blue. It could be sexually abused. It could be rape. It could be seeing a death, death of a family member, any of those things. That mask comes with a concussion. Yeah. That mask will throw you askew. And it is one that you immediately grab defenses for. That's the difference between that slowly applied mask versus the one that gets hit straight in the face. You need to immediately do what? Defend yourself. Because you yep. can't run from reality. There is no fight or flight. Fight or flight doesn't exist unless you do what Chuck did. And that was his decision. Yep. That struck me very deeply, and I'm sure it's going to strike a lot of people, and I'm sure that you've carried that burden your entire life, and I'll share something with you. About four years ago, I have a very close friend, his name was Garrett, and he was a very rare soul, um, somebody that when I say the gods bless this dude, like as an action figure, and good looks like he looked like Abercrombie and Ralph Lauren had a baby <laughs> and they fucking were standing there next to Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt looked homeless. This dude was just fucking like, it was bad. Like he was really good looking. And it was the one time in my life that I got to see something. He had the heart of somebody 
that would love anyone on the planet unconditionally, Garrett constantly gave to everybody. He came into corporate roles. He could get any job he wanted. He was loved by everyone and hated by everyone. Uh. I didn't understand that until I met him, and it made me look at life differently. Because as Garrett would go through things, groups of people, the moment he would leave, would have horrible things to say about him. And it was weird to me. Like, I hadn't experienced it to this degree. I've seen people be catty or something, but man, did he intimidate the fuck out of people. Yeah. I know this now. He made them through his confidence and love, not his looks. Do you know why he looked so good? Because he was so loving. The dude embodied everything that you wanted to be, but didn't have the courage to stand up and become. Yeah. So what's easier? Kick him down at the knees. He was there for me so many times. Laughed, cried, vulnerable, all those things. He's going to live with my wife and I for a while while he was in between relationships. And he ended up getting a job in D.C. and goes up there. We stay in contact. In fact, I talked to him for like four hours while he was driving there um, because he didn't have anybody with him in the car. Um, came down to Florida and I'd known that he's struggled with addictions in the past and he'd been sober for a very long time. Um, that said, up there, he had started dabbling back in it. He was trying that party use, that wreck use, that let me be accepted in this new area, you know, attempt. Let me take off my mask for a little while so people love me, right? And he planned to come here and did. It was probably about two hours from my house. And he called me and said, hey, dude, um, I'm kind of busy, not sure I'll be able to make it, whatever. Um, and I blew it off. Not really me, but I was like, eh, I'm tired. You know, I get it. He's over there. We'll do it next time. He went home and I got a message from some people, cause we worked for the same company that he had been found dead and had killed himself yeah. and he had been there for me so many times and i knew he had issues going on and i chose my issues first in that moment and i felt so selfish and i still do because i know the kind of person that i am and that had I seen his face, hands down, would have fucking changed his mind in a second. Would have laid with him fucking for days, whatever it took, the moment I saw it. But I didn't get that chance. I denied him the opportunity. I denied myself the opportunity to do the right thing. All the things that, not in the exact same scenario, but pretty effing close. Yep. Because I dismissed him. That's one of the catalysts to this show in that I had to come to terms myself with not taking action when I felt it deep down. We will deny ourselves the opportunity to help others. 
to protect ourselves when helping others is what protects us. Yep. Sorry. Thought I would share for a moment. You're a little emotional there. No, I love I, that. I dude. appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I think that it goes to show, you know, Ugh. that, you know, fulfillment comes from helping other people, right? Bro, that's, doesn't that's it? What life is, that's what life is truly about. I've, you know, I've had the, the opportunity to make a lot of money at certain times in my life. And, you know, I've, I've been able to help a lot of people and I've never had the type of fulfillment out of life except for when I'm actually helping another person, right? Legitimately helping them with something that, you know, I have that they need and watching their lives change. And I think for the listeners right now, hearing both of these stories, um, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to use them as a tragedy. You know, we don't no. have to think of them as, as a negative thing, right? Because that story of Garrett and the story of Chuck, you know, both of these stories are now helping people listening right now to know to step up in those moments, to know that if there's someone on your mind right now that you care about and you know is struggling, you know, just shoot them a text and say you love them. You're thinking about them. For sure, you know, man. I can tell you that in my addiction, there were multiple times that my life was changed or saved because of a text message or a call that I got. You know, right. when I was sitting there thinking about ending, ending it all and my mom calls and I didn't answer, but just the fact that she called, you know, and I saw mom on my phone. I can't do this. You know, no, that's baggage that you put on somebody. Yeah. The addict will torture themselves to the end of time to not torture those around them while torturing those around them. Ain't that a goat fuck? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's so many weird paradoxes in it's it tail yeah. like nobody's business, man. Yeah, life of the Cheerio. Amen, amen. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm uh, I'm homeless and I'm you know I can't get I can't get out of this thing and I end up having a series of pretty profound spiritual experiences and uh, on November 11th, this is on November 6th was the last day that I had used and on November 11th I'm at IHOP. International House of Pancakes in Billings, Montana with my best friend. And, you know, I have five days clean at the time. It's amazing. Like I, you know, I didn't think I would make it five days and I'm all excited. I'm talking to him and I got this text message on my phone and I just have this little flip phone and I open it up and it's for my dope dealer. It's <laughs> like, Hey bro, I just got some new stuff. I'll give you a free 20 to try out. It's fire. And right when I read that, I felt something go in through the top of my head, all the way through my body. My whole body was tingling. My toes were tingling. My fingers were tingling. And I lost my peripheral vision and all I could see was the phone. And then my thumbs just started texting back. And it was in like King James. It was like, ye shall not text me again. Thou hast texted me for the last time. It was going crazy. Then at the end of the text, it said, and fear the pain you cause your son because your son has been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And then whew, I feel this thing leave me. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like reading my phone. I show it to Brandon. I was like, dude, that was not me. I was like, I don't know what that was. That was not me. He was like, okay. And I push send, close the phone and I'm putting it in my pocket. I'm like, dude, I don't know what that was. I don't know who that was. And I look back up and Jesus is sitting across from me. The entire restaurant had completely disappeared. All I could see was his face. There was a bright light coming from behind him. He was smiling at me and bro. And I'm, all of this is happening in less than a second. In that moment, the only Thing that I can compare it to is when I used to shoot up heroin. Like when, when everything, all my negative thoughts, all my negative emotions, all my worries, all my fears, everything just kind of flooded out of me with one warm flood into me, right? 
Mm-hmm. But the difference is with heroin, it would just numb out everything. But in that moment, in less than a second, I got overflowed with an enormous sense of, of purpose, of value, of love, of peace, of identity, of, of confidence, of I'm going to be okay. And then discernment? I felt discernment. Yes. I knew immediately who it was, bro. There was, there was no, there was no, um, it's, it's hard to explain when you see him and it's just like right here in this vision, right in front of you, you just know exactly what's happening. And I fell with my face to the table, my hand up. I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I came back up and he was gone and I haven't used since. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people ask me, you know, um, how do you, how do you make that happen for other people? Right. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I had this experience and these experiences are well recorded throughout history. There's a lot of different experiences like this. Um, they used to call them profound religious experiences. Bill W founder of AA had one, you know, in his treatment center. Um, and when you're describing something that is landed, it's, it's survived the test of time. Religious experiences are also taken in through lenses of perception, the way that we need them communicated to us. Um, My viewpoint, because a lot of people tend to take spirituality when it's put into a bucket of a religion that they're going to turn their head off immediately. They're going to be like, dude, eh, you're not selling me something (laughs) that I feel like I really know I need. Right. And that's really the mechanism behind that. But at the end of the day, what we're all doing is describing a singular experience that comes through evolution of our life, Yeah. right? That experience, I think it's described in, I want to say Hinduism or, or Buddhism or somewhere in Eastern um, philosophies as a kundalini awakening, Yep. right? Um, kind of like an electric charge and a moment of discernment. Um, a lot of people have them. They can follow traumatic experiences. They can follow birth. They can follow uh, plant medicine. They can follow meditation. And I believe in my heart of hearts, because there has to be, if there is something of benevolence or greater than us that is in charge of whatever the hell this is or yeah, watching it, observing it, I don't know. I would like to believe that that it's somebody that's all-encompassing. Yep. And when I look at religious experiences and religion and the moral compass that it provides from all the sects, because unless it's some weird-ass cult where they're eating kids, it's probably going to say, the, thou shalt not fuck up other people, thou shalt not, <laughs> yeah. you know, fucking be cool, you know, <laughs> all the shit yeah. that it's supposed to say. And they all say that, right? So it sounds more to me like a pizza, right? (laughs) It's a good fucking pizza and it's got different toppings, right? Got sausage, you got pepperoni, you got mushrooms, you got curry for India, you got fucking sushi or fish on this one, whatever the fuck it is, but they're all telling you to be good and they're all pointing to the same spot. That little fucking table in the middle that keeps the box from closing, I might be God, (laughs) I don't know, but- that said those experiences are lenses and their interpretations of what we are experiencing every day in my mind i reconcile my inability to take in human error 
because I don't trust the historical accounts of all the things that we have today. However, I can break things down in my own mind and simplify them. Everybody was pretty much illiterate as shit when he was around, right? Destitute, sans, religious people, and rich people. There's your literate group, right? And I'm, if I'm him, right? And I'm not, obviously. <laughs> but if I go out to the desert and I fucking sit down on my ass and I meditate for, what is it, 40 days? Right? Yep. 40 days, which that was like sands, water, and anything in between. But we know this is possible. We've seen it in other cultures, this type of meditation. You're going to probably achieve what? Discernment. You're going to see that it's nobody's fault. You're going to see that we're a product of where we come from and that we're all experiencing everything in different ways. And it's going to happen whether we want it or not. Right? Yep. So what's the only thing you can do? Look, guys. Just say you're sorry when you do something that's shitty and try again. That's all I can ask you to do. Sounds yeah. a lot like sins being forgiven. Sounds like repentance. Sounds like everything in between. Also sounds like a dude that recognized the people up here aren't going to share the information with people here. I can't necessarily educate the masses, but I can give them an out. Whether that's through him from somewhere above, that's for someone else to translate. I don't know the guy. I wasn't there, but he was spitting some pretty good fucking information. <laughs> I got nothing wrong with the guy, man. Like <laughs> as a as a human being when he was here, he was trying to do good shit. That's all I can say. He did disappear yep. for twenty eight years. That's a little weird to me. Like that sounds like an addict that fucking came back out recovered. But that's <laughs> <laughs> well, notice, notice I just got canceled. Yeah, notice <laughs> at the beginning of this. You know, I said one of the main things that I hear that addicts go through that you know, starts their addiction is the hypocrisy of the church, the hypocrisy yeah. of going to church with their family and then going home and having a totally different home. Yeah. And I, you know, and also in my belief, I believe that, you know, God is able to heal somebody in an instant is able to take cravings away, withdrawals away and all that stuff in an instant. That didn't happen. Not real. That didn't happen for me. Yep. I, I was sick. I, I had a 16 year addiction that I, that I just saw Jesus that was telling me, you know, now it's time to stop. But here I am waking up every day, shaking, waking up every day, craving and withdrawing and literally like, I can't stop thinking about it. And what I learned in that process, right. Is that even though I know God is with me, that doesn't mean that he's doing everything for me. That doesn't mean that he's telling me I'm going to do everything for you. What I learned in this process is that knowing that he's with me, knowing that, you know, I have this relationship with God, I'm able to do all things. So I embarked on the 12 steps, you know, and I did them really, really fast. I did them as if my life depended on it. I did, I did them as if I didn't care what anybody thought of me anymore. I was willing to be honest with everybody. I was willing to tell my sponsor everything in my life, did my first ever fifth step on day, on day 25. And on day 26, I was on my way to the, uh, movie theater with my sponsor he came and picks me up every morning at 6 30 a.m in his 1983 mailman jeep and we're driving <laughs> i like him already <laughs> yeah and we're driving to the movie theater he managed because we did the work in the basement i'm looking over at this beautiful sunrise and for the first time since i was 12 years old i had a spiritual awakening that i had no desire to drink or use and it hasn't come back and now 
that's like the chicken and the egg question, you know, was it, was it the fact that I had this religious experience or was it the fact that I did the work that it takes to recover, you know? And for me, I think that every single person that is suffering right now in addiction, 100% has the ability to recover a hundred percent. And it, and you know, there's no willpower that you can muster up to stop using drugs, to choose not to use drugs. But there is a willpower inside of you that will help you to make the decisions to do the work that will help you stop using drugs and will help you. And it's not just stopping using drugs either. I think that's a huge misconception and a huge false narrative that the recovery community has grown up with that was never meant to be. We're not fighting to stop using drugs for the rest of our life. We're able to recover and live an amazing, beautiful, uh, abundant and loving and service filled life in recovery. Like my, my life is, you know, right now I have so much joy and happiness in my life and it's directly, it's directly correlated with the amount of people that I help. Mm. And I can't even, I can't even explain it, bro. It used to be when I woke up, I need drugs. And then this, this, this highway in my brain is like, okay, now we're doing all these different things step by step by step by step until we get drugs. And then we're going to get this dopamine release. Okay. Well, now that, that highway hasn't gone away, but I've, I've completely changed the car. Now I wake up like, okay, how, what do I need to do today to help people? Who can I help today? How can I do this? And then all of a sudden when somebody messages me and says, Hey, I saw your, I saw your podcast 90 days ago. And I just wanted to reach out and tell you I have 90 days clean today. That is a dope hit bro that is like the dopest that dope <laughs> will make you smile from ear to ear it'll hit your heart it'll make you it'll make you cry because yes. you're like holy shit i impacted somebody's life in a positive way through action this yes. is the word that really should be pointed out in every instance of survival growth experiences the only way you get through anything is action victimhood yes. requires action to leave it victimhood's a very comfortable chair that fucker comes with like a massager in the back it's got a cup holder speakers by your ear probably a toilet because man getting out of victimhood is fucking requires some kind of nonsensical amount of motivation to get just to step over a non-existent fence Right, it really will. It'll hold you back to such a degree that you won't even fucking be able to see what's in front of you. Yep. You have to act in order to create. Yes. I believe you brought up in the beginning of this. How do you reach children and help them at that moment of change where their perception leaves love and becomes fear? That's the yeah. description I'd like to give it because it's love because it's uninhibited and there's no danger. Danger presents itself in so many different ways. We have a very finite amount of mindfulness and love that we give to each other or the world on a daily basis, right? To the degree that we've given it away, we will take our mindfulness and we'll hand it to the entertainment industry and allow them to provide us something an hour's worth of time to escape, right? That's a huge onus on creators. Yeah. I say that a lot because if you're not making something worthwhile, 
then you're taking advantage of somebody's only downtime when they're trying to recuperate from what is reality, right? I believe that art in all of its forms, creativity, imagination, I believe that is the purest form of love. I believe that those things that come from creativity are the purest forms of love that we have and stand the test of time, shows through the artists, shows through musicians, shows through all time. We cling to the ones that were what? Themselves. Yep. 100% authentic, 100% a creator. And I've come to learn over time that I believe children are stifled and told what they're not capable of in advance, what they should fear, what their limitation is before they ever even get a chance to try it. Piano's hard. Well, fuck, man. What if I was a genius and you just fucking planted the seed? Way to go, dick. I could have been a savant. But now, and don't tell me it doesn't exist. I use the analogy all the time from Ernest Becker. Dude, walk down a plank of wood to me, and you could moonwalk, catwalk, fucking whatever, car wheel. I put that bitch five feet up in the air and say, do the same thing. Suddenly your arms are out of this, and you're fucking (laughs) doing all this shit. You got the same balance, the same everything. It's a fear. Fear is a limitation. So we have to teach children or provide children creative outlets and allow them to be authentic. If they want to be a fucking space cowboy, let them figure out how to do it. <laughs> Guarantee you, if you let that kid that wants to do that, you're going to see him fucking waving a cowboy hat over his head in the fucking space shuttle landing on some fucking other place. Yeah, I did. <laughs> right? But that's the kid that we didn't tell him he's a fucking idiot. For one yeah. to wear a cowboy hat in space. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. Like, what does it matter? Those limitations come from our parents. Those limitations come from our generations above us. It's a genetic and hereditary insanity that we pass on generation after generation. And people like yourself are key. Experiences are locks. And there are people like you, I, and the people that we view on this show are keys. The reality is, though, you don't know what key you are. And you can't force your key. You can only hand it out. And you don't know if you're the first, middle, or the last key. The last key opens the lock of discernment or that moment where somebody says, you know what, all these fuck-ups in a row are now at the juncture I need to see Jesus in Denny's or IHOP. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Right. But it is, it's the one that the guy that gets resuscitated after being, you know, on the ground, uh, after a heart attack. And then all of a sudden this dude's like, fuck life. (laughs) Right. Because all of a sudden this dude realizes that you're all actors. This is just a mirage you're sick you're playing a game with each other when you could just be loving in time in place and just being cool right i think that we are 
amazing vessels for creation and for love. And I think the proof is in what we're all perceiving and not seeing. And that is that it's never anything but now. It's never the future. It's never the past. No matter where you land, no matter where you open your eyes, no matter what it is, it'll always be now. Aptly called the present. It's a gift. I like to think that we're not journeying, but that we're viewing ourselves in one single moment of eternity through different lenses. If life were a firework, we would be like a fountain that never stopped, right? The one that you put on the driveway that just goes and it has colors because it doesn't have the opportunity to not be now. That means that we're infinitely creating everything around us, everything at any given moment. You're creating me. I'm creating you. I don't know how it works, but it's always now. It's always now. And I think that that's created out of love. I think that's what it's purely in its purest form. And I think that's how we're creating our future. I think yeah. we're creating our future through create through creativity and through a child's eyes. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said something during that about our experiences, right? And them being the keys. And that's why, you know, that's the whole mission of Recovered on Purpose, because I can't change what happened to me. I can't change the fact that that is the experience that I had that found recovery for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to change my story to conform to people that can't hear about Jesus. You know, I'm not going to do that. However, recovered on purpose, what I train people is how to tell their recovery story. Not everybody has a story with Jesus. Not everybody has, you know, a story with um, the 12 steps, you know, and I have people in my in my course right now. I have LGBTQI plus community in my in my courses. I have, you know, people that did the 12 steps. I have somebody that used to practice witchcraft, you know, all of these different people that found recovery. And that's the whole mission of Recovered on Purpose, because each of them has a different key for someone out there that's suffering in an experience that they've been through. So each of us need to share our story of recovery because this one size fits all method that everybody's throwing around into people that are suffering in addiction is not working. So I teach people how to share their stories in a powerful message that's the truth about what they experienced not the dogma that has been created in recovery about what you're supposed to say about how to recover, but no, what actually happened to you so you can actually attract the people out there that are suffering to the reality of what they're going through. And then when they come to you, when they message you because they saw a video or they heard a podcast or something that you did, or they read one of the books that Recovered on Purpose is published and they reach out to you, you don't start jamming them with what they have to do. You start asking them questions about their personal story, about their personal experience, about their personal circumstances, what they've tried before. Because if you start telling people, go to a meeting every single day, find a sponsor, do the 12 steps, da 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 da. And this person is 18 years into a, into a meth addiction. And this person has been trying the 12 steps for the last 10 years and it's not working for them. You know, they can't get into treatment and you don't give them the opportunity to tell you that. They're going to be like, well, this here's another person in the 12 step program that just tells me what I need to do that isn't working for me. 
No, you need to ask them what's not working for them, what is working for them, what they believe that they need to do. And the way that we get in is they they feel understood and they feel hurt. So we need to get and bro, it it used to be at the beginning of recovery, you know, we were sending letters to people, you know, in different states. We didn't have phones, we didn't have making you know, them bins on paper and uh, exactly. the whole nine. Exactly. Yep. But now, and I don't understand why, you know, there's not way more people being way more public and making way more viral videos about how they recovered because there's, there's an enormous amount of people suffering right now. The stats are being hidden from us. And I just found this out yesterday that all of the studies that show the amount of people that are in recovery versus the amount of people that are actually suffering an addiction. They are completely false. What's being put out to us 100% completely false. We're, we're something like 43, 44 million people right now with substance use disorder in the United States. And they put out that there's 21.9 million of us. It's only the, the case, ones that have the lens pointed at them at the time that they're in situations that are vulnerable and under the influence of whatever it is. Yes. Here's the reality. Middle white America is fucking high as shit. Yeah. living in every corporate building across the entire country. Yeah. High as fuck. And you know why we don't know? Because we don't accuse them. We don't yeah. look for it. We veil it with corporate, uh, you know, fucking retreats or time off for a sabbatical or a family issue in fucking, you know, New Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> at some in some yurt, fucking sweating out the shit that you fucking did, you know. That's what it really is, and it's that old western set. Every house out here in the suburbs is just a fucking fake front. It's just a fucking fake front. Everybody behind it laying on the ground. But you said, why don't people put it out more? Yeah, right. That they've gone through this. I think that that's a generational weight. It's like an anvil. That isn't going to just disappear. It's going to fall off or slowly dissipate as we get older. Because those generations were molded in such a manner that weakness was derived from any kind of admittance of pain. Especially in the male role. Especially in the single mother role. You know, things like that. Or any kind of service role or the ones that require the most pain on the heart and soul are the ones that are out there taking in these drugs and different modicums of relief. And they don't have a voice because they're not able to express it because in middle America, that's a dark mark. That can put you lower on the social ladder. That can violate the stability that you've created on that front of your house. And once that's violated, oh shit, you might need more drugs and alcohol. <laughs> yeah, well, I can I can tell you, bro, that if it weren't for my addiction and recovery story um, and me opening with it in almost every communication that I have, uh, bro, I've, I've been, you know, playing squash with a judge. I'm not going to say exactly where from because he's probably known every Tuesday in my recovery because I told him when I met him, yeah, you know, three and a half years ago, I was homeless and sticking a needle in my arm, but now I'm not, you know, and I share, share a locker room with a Senator, 
you know, and I, and I'm around these people because I am, you know, sharing my story and I, and I do it authentically. I'm not hiding who I am anymore. I don't have to hide anything. I don't have to wear that mask anymore because I'm not ashamed, bro. Dude, I overcame this thing and there's people out there that need me and need us. And when I'm talking about us needing to, you know, get our stories out more, I think there's, there's plenty of people that are doing TikToks and doing, you know, YouTubes and Facebooks and things like that, but it's too centered around pointing people to a treatment center. Yeah. That's, that's the main issue because no treatment center has success right now. The, and you, you cannot, if you can send me one treatment center that has over a 30% success rate for a year, I will send everybody there because right now it's 9% nationwide you're not getting better than that we don't need to teach people how to be we need to teach people to be yeah unconditionally be if you are the key word you said earlier authentic yeah life comes a fuck ton easier yes what we don't realize is every one of those masks that we put on come with weight Every one of those different ways that we fight a fear of judgment, each one of those, they're not fucking paper thin. And they they're smell like, bad. They're granite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you carry them in a sack over your shoulder, right? Because you have to switch them out. Yeah. Because right now it's an interview. I got to go in this sack. I got to dig out the one with a fucking tie on it. And I'm yep. going to put it on. And I'm going to sit here and fucking tell me, man. Yep. Because that's all it is. And people with discernment can smell them, bro. I can Whoa. smell a mask from a mile away. You come up to me and you're so not authentic. Easy. Bye. <laughs> I can and tell. That's hard for yeah. some people. You don't realize that that's not a skill that everybody has. Right. It's a skill born of a few different things. There's a lot of people that will analyze it from a lot of different directions, call it a whole bunch of different names. But at the end of the day... Somebody that has the ability to read people in moments generally lived a fearful life for a period of time so that they're able to calculate their surroundings. And people like that to you and I look like they're twisting an imaginary mustache and tying a lady to the train tracks while everybody else is like, look at our new CFO. Yeah. I'm like, no, dude, that guy's creepy as shit. He's yeah. got somebody in his basement. You don't see you don't see that? Yeah. Why don't we see this? Who's yeah. not with me? Well, why how are we not seeing this? They can't. Yeah. They yeah. don't have the lenses to view it through. Yep. Yeah. And there and again, we can't even judge that person. We just gotta act authentic around them. Yep. Be a lighthouse so other people can find their way. That yep. may actually be the key that opens the last lock. Oh, shit. This dude just fucking exists perfectly imperfect and doesn't worry about being anything except for just cool and helping out people. That's a pretty big message. Anybody that can walk around with a smile that's not fake is fucking glue to the world. People will be attracted to you like nobody's business, yeah. especially the ones that need it. And I always say, if you feel like high-fiving somebody, you better fucking do it. I don't care if you don't know them. I don't care if you've never met them. I don't care if it's against your religion, whatever the fuck it is. You see somebody walking by you, 
and you are inclined to do something like that or just be like, sup, whatever, you better do it because that's intuition. That's the greater knowing that we all have with each other. Those impulses that we restrict for fear of judgment, for being goofy, for acting like a fool in situations, you know, and where other people wouldn't do it like target or something like that. I'll put just about everything I have sans my wife on the line and say that person needed that high five. It's as simple as that. We know what everybody needs. We're just afraid of being judged for giving it out. For some fucked up reasons, like the gym. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to go to the gym. Gym was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, unless you fucking threw a disc, you never complained leaving the gym unless you were going back to work. Yep. Like, it's a good thing. And you never complain after you handed out something to somebody that was homeless. Yep. Like, do you feel bad after giving somebody something? I no. It's like Christmas, but in reverse. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Amen. That's the secret to life, man. Finding finding that that person within you that has that generous heart, that has that generous heart for others and yourself. I think that's a that's a piece that people miss is that we want to be generous to ourselves and to our own self-love, to our own self-care. And it doesn't matter if you've been through addiction, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, you've been through some traumatic thing in your life. And, you know, some people have lived an incredible life and just been really, really, you know, well secured through life. But I can tell you that there's a level that you can take yourself, that you can put yourself through a certain amount of trauma. You can put yourself through something that is really difficult to do and it'll change you. It will change you. And anybody out there that has something that they want with their life right now, something that you're just like, tightly grasping onto in your mind, but not taking that step yet. You know, it's just like the gym. It's just like skydiving. It's it's right after you do it, right after you take that first step, you begin to have the bliss. You begin to have the joy. You begin to have the fulfillment immediately from taking the first step. And bro, I have someone in my course right now that in two and a half weeks has completely changed you know, I've been working with her for a while, but I got on this coaching call with her and we were talking about something and I could just see that there was something else going on with her, you know? And then, and then I kind of dove into it and started talking to her. And then she, she told me, I'm just really, you know, down and depressed because of my health, because of, you know, because of the way that I look, you know? And I was like, all right, we're off all this. We're working on that. Cause that's yep. what we do. If there's something that's there, we need to work on that. Bro, in the last two and a half weeks, we've completely transformed her entire health practice, her habits, her exercise routine, her eating routine and everything. And, you know, we, her entire way that she shows up on calls, the way that she looks, the way that she talks has changed in two and a half weeks, two and a half weeks. That's the first step. She hasn't, you know, lost a whole bunch of pounds and all this kind of stuff yet. But what she sees is the hope because she started what she needs to start to have the goal that she wants. And if you have that thing that you want, you can start to feel it once you have the plan and you start taking the actions towards it. And, and the thing is, if you have that in your heart that you want to do, you're supposed to, it's for you. It was put there for you to do it. And is it's you. already yours. It is you. Yes. 
You is always rooting for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have hope. Like, it's always there. Hope is there to the last possible second. And we deny hope the opportunity so many times. We'll drown hope. We'll push hope out of the scene. We'll do anything we can because hope means that we're wrong. It means that we didn't assess everything correctly and that we hedged our bets the wrong way. Right? It's kind of like a smoker. Smoker will ride cigarettes with the intent to quit until the day they know it's too late. And then what do they do? Double down. Fuck it. I'm going out on my terms. No, you're not. The terms are on the side of that fucking box you keep opening up. It's yep. Surgeon General, you're fucked, yeah. right? But we get to those moments in life, especially addictions, because once you feel like you're caught, even if you're not, whatever it is, you've hit that juncture where all hell is breaking loose and I know that I'm going down, that's when people double down in addictions. If you know you're going to jail, how high do you fucking get? High as you possibly fucking can. You try to do so much that you think you could get five years worth of come down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the same thing. We do it with food. We romanticize a certain weight. Well, I'm finally past 200. It's fucking over. Roll me a bucket of chicken and some Haagen-Dazs because this is me now. I admit this is my character. This is my mask. I'm going to sit in this chair and I am now fat ass and I hate fat ass. And so should you. And that's fucking so sad because the one thing aside from the beautiful planning put together to give this woman, this young woman or this person a very safe path to recovery and to taking care of themselves is amazing. And one additional thing, which I'm sure you're doing, but I want to point out to everybody, is during that time frame, the fear of being judged for being fat or the shame for being in any state is something that has to be eradicated in the manner that you're perfect. It doesn't matter if you're 500 pounds or 50 pounds, anorexic or obese, you know, or you got a fucking... One right eye is five times larger than the left. Well, guess what? You're supposed to look that way. You're perfect. You're perfect right now because you're imperfect. The only thing permanent in life is change. To want perfection is to deny reality. Because perception is perfection. It's only the guy that's holding me right glasses at the moment. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say a little bit. Uh, to go deep into that also, because if there's something about you that you want to change, then it's not okay not to. If you are overweight mm. and you see yourself in the mirror and you don't like being overweight, you're not supposed to look in the mirror and say, I'm perfect like this. Oh, no, no, no. You lying are to yourself. And that goes, I have a lot of things that I work on constantly. There's things that I'm consistently working on and consistently changing about myself because it's important. I started recovery at 148 pounds, bro. I'm 215 right now. 
and I had to work. I had to eat. I had to work and work and work and work. And in order to do this, you know, and then there's all these different thought patterns, all these different habits that I've had to change. There's things right now that I'm changing and I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm doing my cold plunge every morning and then I'm going to the gym and I have to make sure that I have time to do my journal and my goals. I have to make sure that I schedule it like this. And I, and for me, it's not okay for me not to, because I know who I am in my peak. And if there's something that's holding you back from being able to see the reality of your potential, first, mm. we need to get rid of that. That's first, get rid of that. That's a lens. And I agree with you and exactly what you're saying. It's not an acceptance of your situation. That goes back to victimhood yeah. and being okay with being not okay. Yes. And that's not cool, right? But you do have the opportunity to look at obesity for what it is. Yes. A symptom. Yes. Exactly. It is a symptom of something else. All of our mental illnesses, our addictions, our cravings, whatever the fuck they are, are simply symptoms of a caged mind that's being denied authenticity yes. and it's expressing itself in small locations and manifestations of things that violate societal rules. Yes. That's it. That's it. Your fucking anxiety is literally created from not being yourself. Yeah. That might be oversimplifying things. It's fucking true. You are actively stifling yourself from being yourself. By the way, if you are religious, way to smack the fuck out of your God in the face. Thanks for making me this way, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Who are you? Yes. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> yes. Exactly. And, and we'll give yourself diarrhea to fucking do it. Yeah. And see Stressing that's it out. Yeah. And that's that's like that's one of the best thoughts that I have about my faith, right? And I'm not religious, bro. I, I hate the word religious because it damages so many people. And bro, I'm I'm you know, I'm loving so many people from so many different walks. I just have a right. relationship with God, bro, through Jesus. And I can't help it. You know, that's who I am. That's and your that, lens. And something something that really, a lens that I have with that, that really helps me, bro, is that I have this, this fear, this immense mm. fear that, and it's, it's a fear plus motivator, that when I die, I am actually going to see my potential, what my potential was. I'm going to see, I'm going to see people who I could have helped. I'm going to see people that I did help that I, I never, I never had the opportunity to know that that, that person that I helped there ended up helping 10,000 people not starve. I may never be able to see that here, but I'm going to be able to see it when I die. But I'm also if I don't, if I don't act at my potential, if I don't do what I'm able to do while I'm here, I'm also going to see missed opportunities and I'm, I'm not going to have the same kind of feelings that I have now. I'm not going to have, you know, regret and, and, you know, sadness and all that kind of stuff, but I'm going to be able to, I want to, I want to be able to see that thing and be like, dang, 
at least I got like a B plus, you know, I missed my twenties. I missed my twenties with some drugs, but man, dude, <laughs> you're so right. Like you're so, so right. And we focus on what we've done and we've judged what we've done and we've put it into a little corral and we've actually, we've actually scrapbooked that bitch. Yeah. Right. Everything we've done, because we think no matter what religion you are, but for some reason we believe that there is a moment where we're going to have to show our scrapbook. We've justified things. We've drawn lines there. It looks like a fucking serial killer mapping out its next <laughs> victim, right? Or somebody trying to solve the crime. That's what it looks like. When in all reality, you're going to get to see or know what you missed out on. That's so true, man. You're going to know that you didn't take that swing when you were at bat 24-7. Yes. 24-7, you were at bat, and it was unlimited balls. Oh, that sounds like a bad porn. <laughs> I, let me change that analogy. We're going to make it something completely different. Well, I, I've heard it. I heard it. I, yeah, I know, but I don't want unlimited balls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you like them, that's your thing. Um, that said, uh, we're, we're coming up on uh, 105, and um, I want to give you the opportunity to tell people where to find you. Um, and I also want to tell you, thank you for being you unconditionally you and for having a voice for those that don't have it yet. Um, that's extremely important. I think that, uh, you're doing great things and I appreciate you taking the time to come on here and share your experience with my listeners or our listeners, the academics, as we call them, um, about how they can navigate life. And this doesn't just apply to addictions. Right. Because like I said earlier, addictions are symptoms, right? And we're all suffering from the same mental illness and that's not being ourselves. So if we can help each other embrace and love who we are and have people like yourself to guide us down that path, we're going to get through this. It's just a matter of time. And I think generational, you know, change will also free a lot of these restrictive thinkings. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate you. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what to expect? Yeah, Jay, and I, I really appreciate you uh, you having me as well. And I think one closing message would be if there's if there's something that's polarizing you from other people, try to look at how to let that go to come together. I think if we all came together, we could do a lot more on this planet. Um, you can find me at recoveredonpurpose.org. Uh, I give away my book for free there, digital and audio copy. I also have a free relapse prevention worksheet for people that are in recovery. And it's not like anything clinical out there. We're just going to find out who you are and how we're going to get you to that person. Then you can also follow me on Facebook, uh, Recovered on Purpose, obviously, and do a lot of lot of uh, stuff over there. Then YouTube, Recovered on Purpose as well. Bro, thank you so much. Jay, thank you. You're a super cool guy. Um, I appreciate you, and you're welcome back anytime. Awesome. I appreciate you, brother. Right on. And remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning.